everybody. Welcome to 2022 and welcome to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 226. And so that's a lot of twos to open up this new year. And uh, maybe some of you noticed last week, uh, I did not release a podcast, took the week off between Christmas and New Year's because we had a new grandbaby boy born into the family who was literally born on Christmas Day. So he shares Jesus's not birthday birthday, which is pretty exciting. Now, some of you may be saying, what do you mean not birthday birthday? Well, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, but our grandson Ezrin was. We put Jesus on 25th of December because we can. And so now they share a thing because they do, which is pretty exciting. So took some time off, everything else. But now we're swinging back around, getting the podcast underway for 20. 2022. And I'm rolling out a little bit of a series that is going to be, I have no clue how long and I have no clue exactly uh, how it's going to hit or not hit, whether it's going to encourage or trouble. I don't know. I hope it encourages because I'm trying to unpack um, kind of a journey, a process that has been true in my own life. And and so um, it's, it's a series that might go three weeks, four weeks, two weeks, eight weeks. I, I really don't know, honestly. But I think it's important um, maybe to start this off by giving a sense of where this is born out of, right? And so this first installment is going to be one part, the topic that you clicked on. And the other part or the first part is going to be why on earth am I then talking about all of this stuff? What was kind of, again, the road that has led up to this? And and with that, too, I, I, I want to be clear that this road has different kind of uh, it's like it's like a telescoping journey, right? It's like a telescope that has parts where it's its own part, but parts where it overlaps the previous part. Like there's some of that stuff, too. And so for me, I think what I'm trying to articulate in all of this is a series of overlapping things. Some have been true for 30 years. Some have been true for 15 years. Some have been true for five years. Some have been true for the last five months, whatever else, right? So um, I'm going to try to give kind of like how I got to now or how I ended up getting to this uh, and then from that to help us understand why the topic is what it is. Now, in part, some of this you're going to be familiar with, right? And and what I mean by that is throughout much of 2021, which is kind of a blur in some ways, but through much of 2021, uh, I spent time uh, doing what many people called picking on my evangelical tradition or heritage, my Protestant evangelical tribe, right? I did a lot of that. And a lot of that picking was in relationship to how we engage with and interact with culture, particular things like politics or ethics or social issues or whatever else, maybe a little bit of economics or racial things, those kinds of uh, different topics. I-, I was doing a lot of that. And, and people are like, Matt, why are, you- why are you picking on us so much? And my answer is no, I wasn't trying to pick. I was actually trying to confront. And I wasn't just trying to confront you. I was trying to confront all of us, including myself, right? And I was doing that because I am increasingly convinced that what I see in the vision of Jesus, the dream that Jesus has for the world, and the means by which that vision and dream is accomplished, things that we call the kingdom, uh, when we read the New Testament and talk about things of Jesus— I was convinced that all of those things and then what I was seeing in the evangelical American church were pretty dramatically out of sync, uh, like to the point of troublesome. And and so from that, I, I really kind of used the last year to year and a half to take on the role of 
like an Old Testament prophetic voice who the prophets of the Old Testament didn't go to Israel and say, hey, let me talk crap about the Assyrians and Babylonians. And that was it, right? Because that's always nice to have a pundit who says you're more right than the idiots across the road. That's awesome. But that's not what the Old Testament prophets did. They may say, hey, the idiots across the road are idiots, but boy, Israel, you're an even bigger idiot. And here's why. And they would kind of confront that. And oftentimes what they were confronting in Israel was Israel thinking it was righteous, godly, and good when it was none of the above. And so they would have to literally try to rattle the people and say, don't you see that what you think is good is bad? You think up is down and down is up and this is all broken. And so there'd be confrontation. And so for 2021, I did a lot of that. And part of the reason I did it in 2021 was because it wasn't a voting year. Like if there's anything I learned from 2020 is that emotions are so high and whether we like it or not, we are so loyal to our political structure and the subcontext of economics and social ethics and, 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 and things of that nature that, that we're, we're probably much more products of our earthly environment in the name of Christ than we are products of Christ living out in an earthly environment. And so I knew that for 2021 to needle at some of these things, it would be better to do it when that's not an election cycle than what it is like this year when who knows the house and the senate may flip back and you know things may change and then 2024 it's going to be probably another interesting thing and so i was trying to use the off season to address some of those things and part of that then gets even deeper to what i've then been analyzing and wrestling with and uh, why i think uh it's time for me to do this little series in the podcast and maybe even in the spirit of that, what my motive is, is not more tearing down or confrontation, though that's going to help it or it's going to happen at times, but rather it's how do we build out of, how do we grow and learn from what I think have been our, our um, unhealthy wedding to our world in the name of Jesus more than displaying a healthy Christ-likeness and Christ-incarnate nature to the world around us. Like, like how do we, again, kind of reconstruct that which I've been kind of pulling apart down to the studs at times for the last year to two years, right? And and so that was kind of the essence behind it. And, and then maybe to be more acute to the timeline as far as the things that have driven me to this more, it's a couple of things, right? One is I'm going to call it a crisis of faith. Um, I've kind of talked about that a little bit here in the podcast that I've gone through a bit of crisis of faith, but not like the normal kind of crisis of faith, right? So the standard form is I'm not sure God exists. I'm not sure he's real because of this scientific thing, because of this social problem, because of this ethical dilemma, uh, because of this textual criticism issue of the Bible, whatever else. And so I've got doubts and I'm moving on. And that, that's typically how it is. And then you have apologetics answers to kind of reinforce why you don't need to walk away from your faith to understand these things and blah, 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 right? Not the kind that I was having the problem with. The kind that I was having the problem with, and and I, yeah, it's been with me for years, and then it just really accelerated in 2020 and 2021. In particular, by midway of 2020, um, I was wrestling with God a lot. I was arguing with God a lot. I was frustrated uh, with God a lot. And the center of it was, um, God, if you're real and what you say in the Bible is true 
And what I see in the Bible is that your gospel has such radical power to transform people that they are literally new people. They are so different. It's as though they went from death to life. They are so different that they have gone from an old nature to a new nature, that they used to hate and be hated, be driven by passions and pleasures, but now they are radically different. And they, from that, look like you, Jesus, and sound like you, Jesus, and react like you, Jesus, and their attitudes and actions and affections are all aligned with you, Jesus. And if somebody looked at them, they'd be seeing you, because even Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what Paul is teaching us there is that everybody should be able to look at us and see Jesus by the way we conduct business and do things and how we don't worry and fret and complain and and gripe and judge and hate and all these things like <clears throat> there was this thing in which I'm like I'm seeing this idea that there is incredible power bestowed in this conversion process where the old person's gone, the new person has come, they're so utterly different than before that it is acutely obvious a, a, a change has taken place. Like I'm reading this in the Bible and I go, Jesus, if that is all true, God, if that is what I see, then why don't I see that around me? In fact, where my frustrations were at times were I'm watching disbelieving people looking sometimes more like Jesus than people that claim Jesus. And then even more deeply, I was looking at some of the Bible teachers that I most admired, most respect, most esteemed as having it nailed down and bringing the Bible right and having good conservative orthodoxy and doctrine and everything else. And then I just started measuring, not in a judgmental way. I mean, probably at times it was judgmental. It wasn't what my intent was necessarily, though I am in process and certainly sinful. But I just started looking and saying, why is it? that the ones that I think have the best handle on teaching the Bible don't seem to look much like Jesus. And I was watching the way some of them were facing the pandemic. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like Jesus. It doesn't encourage like Jesus. It doesn't remind me of Jesus. It doesn't smack of Jesus. It just sounds like religious entitlement where we've been on the top of the heap for a long time and we don't want to lose it. And we've got our systems to keep and the money to bring in and, 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 and these, these standards to uphold. And, and, and I, I just, I remember getting just so utterly disheartened at first because I'm like, God, if there is no obvious transformative power in your people to make them utterly, not just different, but utterly like you, Jesus, because that's the promise, right? If that isn't there, then maybe this is a hoax, Maybe there is no power to be had. Maybe this is just some kind of weird, like, you know, like Tony Robbins, like positive thinking thing, but there's nothing really behind it. Like I was really wrestling with that a lot. But but then I started looking around and saying, okay, instead of looking at the kind of the standard evangelical conservative Bible teachers that I admire and that I'm not seeing a lot like the, the likeness of Jesus in, is there places where I can look and I see the likeness of Jesus more? And then that was a weird thing because some of the Bible teachers that I would be like, I don't know about them. I don't know about them. I don't know about them. There was this weird kind of like, oh, wait, though. But boy, they sound like Jesus. They look like Jesus. They're not complaining. They are fearless. They are calm. They are loving. They are humble. Um, They are serving the world around them. And, 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 And so it was like this kind of a hush moment where I was like, how is it that the ones that seem to be handling the Bible in the way that I think is most right 
seem to not look anything nearly like Jesus, like the other ones that I look at and I go, I don't know if they're handling the Bible is right, but there's something about their life that is really compelling and really powerful that I don't see over here. I see argumentation over here, but I see power over here. I see kind of this born out of the enlightenment rationalism approach to the scripture over here, this total like cohesive theological framework here. But then I see this other worldliness over here. I see something that is beautiful over here. I see something that that just smacks of what I read in the gospels about Jesus over here. What is going on? Like That was the thing I began to go through. And not to say then from that, the problem is somehow the Bible, because I'm going to get to that in a minute, which is why the topic is what it is today. But it just drove me to this place of saying, where then does the real power lie? And in that, have we been looking to something to be a power source that isn't designed to be a power source, but rather is a signpost to the power source, right? Because that was what I ultimately kind of came to the conclusion of, which is Jesus promises power. I'm looking around at Protestant evangelical Christianity. I'm not seeing this kind of display of power as promised. What's the story, right? And so with that, though, I started, again, looking at other places going, but that's weird. Why am I seeing it over there? Right. And, and, and these different groups that I would have not given as much credence to. I mean, they're a part of the Christian family for sure. I'm not denying that part, but... But they're not cutting the Bible as straight as we are. They're not getting as clearly as we do. They're not standing up for it in the same way that we stand up for it. They're a little bit more willy-nilly on some things where we're really concrete on some things. So you think the most accurate would be the most Christ-like. And yet I was looking around saying, it seems like what I understand to be the most accurate seems the most religious, the most moral, the most architected, but not empowered, organic, spiritual, or even dare I say mystical, which is a word I'll get into here probably in a minute too, right? So I was wrestling with all of that. Now, let me add another layer to this and maybe the urgency that I, 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 I connected to. Um, this, uh, I'm right. I'm recording this on January 5th. It'll be uh, released on January 6th, which is the one month or one year. I want to say anniversary of the insurrection. I don't, can you really call an insurrection an anniversary? It's more like, uh, let's just all remember that happened a year ago. Right. But, but it's the one year mark of when the insurrection took place. And again, all of which is then, um, endemic of divide endemic of our political, social, moral, financial idols in a lot of ways. Um, and, and certainly in watching the footage of the insurrection, there was a lot of, uh, flags of Jesus and crosses. And, you know, certainly there was more of a sense that somehow Christians were tethered to a part of this. I don't mean all Christians or anything. That's not my point, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, like when black lives matter was protesting or things of that nature, there wasn't a lot of like Jesus flag, ra- flag waving cross stuff going on at those. Uh, but this certainly had that there's a big giant Jesus banner. In fact, as they're storming into the Capitol building. But for me, while that was happening and I did a podcast on this last year, I spent that entire day in an ER with a young person who had sought to take their own life that day, right? So before the insurrection, early morning hours, life isn't worth living. I'm going to go ahead and punch out kind of thing. And so for me, I'm in an ER and I'm watching the insurrection on the television. And I see this person in the hospital bed 
And I thought, here's this scene of hopelessness. Here's hopelessness as a culture. Here's hopelessness in this bed. And then I see this big banner of Jesus in this whole thing. And I looked at this person and I thought to myself, don't look to Christianity for hope. You're not going to find it. Which sounds like a terrible thing for a pastor to say, right? But I just in that moment, right? I'm just saying in the moment and with everything I'd been going through and wrestling through and struggling through in this lack of empowerment and in my own tribe so often in this sense of just all too earthly in the name of Jesus as opposed to in the name of Jesus being completely different than earthly things. Like all of that kind of coalesced in that moment. And I remember just thinking like, you've got to find a hope in another place because it won't be with us, you know, and and it's terrible sounding, I know. But that's, that's where I found myself. And that's why this became urgent. Because then my walk away is one of two things, right? It's either the Bible makes claims that aren't real or the Bible makes claims that are real, but we are not experiencing those and there must be a reason why. So that leads to the podcast, right? Uh, and certainly to the series. Because that was my walk away. I, I've decided I don't think it's, an absence of power problem, I think it's putting our our focus to look for power in the wrong place kind of problem. In fact, that's why I've titled today's first installment, The Bible versus Jesus. Because I do think there's a difference. Now, as I get underway with this, I I I I know I gotta like double down on being clear here, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna appeal both to my history and then I'm gonna make a statement. So here's the thing I wanna say. Anybody who has listened to this podcast or anybody who has listened to our Sunday morning messages for any length of time will know I'm a pretty big fan of the Bible. I want to take the Bible seriously. In fact, taking the Bible seriously is one of the key mission statements of our church. We talk about the fact that we want to seek to be like Jesus. We want to err on the side of grace. We want to take the Bible seriously. We want to do things for the good of the city, right? So... I believe in taking the Bible seriously. I have my Bible right here next to me. And if anybody picked up my Bible, they will see it's what we call smashed. So from beginning to end, it's riddled with color. It's riddled with notes because I poured over it. I love it. I learn from it. I cleave to it. I long for it in my life. So I want to be clear. This is not designed to undermine the Bible in any way. Because every once in a while, I'll, I'll get an email from somebody listening to the podcast. They're like, what are you saying about the Bible there? What are you saying about the Bible there? Well, hopefully this series is going to coalesce some of this more so you can understand what I'm getting at. I'm very pro-Bible. I believe God gave us the Bible. That is absolutely true. Here's what I'm trying to get at. The Bible, as God's gift to us, I don't believe is the power source. I believe the Bible, as God's gift to us, is the signpost to the power source, right? So the Bible is a tool that takes us to Jesus. But Jesus is the power source, right? We want to get this cleared up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this from the Bible itself, right? Because I think that's really the place I should probably build this argument. And so I want to start with a question to you. When I say to you, what is the word of God? What comes to your thinking, right? What's the image that enters your mind when you hear the phrase, the word of God? Is it... The promises of God? Is it the voice of God? Is it the book of God? Is it the Bible? Is it the documentation in a leather-bound thing? Is that the word of God? Like, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, the word of God? Well, here's what we want to understand. And and again, I'm going to substantiate this with some passages here in a second. I want to say this right up front. The word of God is inspired, 
infallible, and inerrant. And roughly when he was about 18 years of age, he grew a beard. Now, I didn't make that quote. I read that in a book recently, but I love the quote because I think it starts to capture the idea of what we have to understand about what is the Word of God. Before the Word of God is the Bible, it's actually the promises of God in the Old Testament. And before it's the promises of God in the Old Testament, particular promises, in fact, it's actually the person of Jesus. He is the Word of God. Of God, And so when you think about what is the word of God, your first thought should be, well, Jesus is the word of God, right? In fact, we see this in the gospel of John chapter one, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he was filled with grace and truth, right? So Jesus is. He is the word of God. And that's the pinnacle idea in the Bible. When you start reading through the Bible, you're going to come across these places where it says the word of God or the word of the Lord. And you want to look, is it talking about Jesus or is it talking about something else? Because often it's referring directly to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. That's the first punctuation, right? Here's the second one. The word of God or the word of the Lord, especially when you're reading it both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is particular promises that God made to Israel or to humanity about his acts and um, kind of disposition and intentions for the world. So if you go, well, after Jesus being the word of God, when it talks about the word of the Lord or the word of God, it must be the Bible. Well, no, it's actually promises God has made, these sure standing, long suffering promises, right? That's the second thing. Then if you go down the rung a little bit further, you go, well, then what's the Bible? Well, in the New Testament, it talks about the law and the prophets, and that kind of opens it up beyond the promises of God to all the things that we have recorded in the Old Testament, or it talks about the scriptures in the New Testament, and it's talking about the Old Testament scriptures in general. And so the word of God, big W, is Jesus. The next word of God is the promises that God makes of which we find in the Old and New Testament. And then the third rung is the scriptures or the law or the prophets, which is at that point, the book. All right. But I highlight all of that because I want us to understand that when we start to talk about empowerment, if we think empowerment comes from the word of God, the book, we're probably not going to have a lot of empowerment. Because what the book itself is saying is that the word of God are the promises of God and the chief promise of God is the person of God himself coming incarnate to give us transformation, new life, and power. And therefore, if you want power from the word of God, you can't just look at the Bible to be the empower. You have to look at Jesus to be the empower of what is needed in your life to live out this thing that he is calling us to do. All right. That's the definitive difference here. And so when I say Jesus versus Bible, I'm not saying you have to decide on Jesus versus Bible. What I'm saying is make sure you put the Bible in the proper place as it relates to Jesus. I say that because there is this truth and I've seen it for 30 years. I have seen idolatry that is the Bible where people almost have replaced an intimate relationship with God, a mystical, spiritual, um, tough to define relationship with the person of Jesus. They've replaced it with the Bible. And they think if I just study the Bible enough, if I just get in groups of people to study the Bible, if we all just parse it out, work it through, understand the cross references, then I'm going to overcome all of my challenges. And then a lot of people have found like, why am I not overcoming my vices, my fears, my anxieties, my whatever? Well, it's because we're looking to the signpost as opposed to the one that the signpost points to. And that will be problematic every single time, right? Because 
The Bible is clear where our power flows from. The power doesn't come from the book. The power comes from the one in whom the book reveals. And that doesn't undermine the book. That doesn't drag the book down. It helps us understand what it is we should expect and not expect from the book. Because for far too long, even in my own world, I've thought like, if I just teach it better, if I just understand it better, if I just learn it better, if I just highlight it better and memorize it better, then I'm going to be a more empowered person. But here's the person that knows the Bible better than anybody. His name's Satan. Not a terribly empowered dude, right? And there are scholars out there that completely are atheists, but are specialists in the Bible, not empowered people. And there are people that I know in my own world that have studied the Bible a lot, but they're still curmudgeon and they're unpleasant and they treat their spouse poorly and they've got all kinds of other issues. And, and so clearly it's like that can't be the be all end all, but rather it is the means to the end and the end is Jesus. Because Jesus is truly the empowering word of God. The Bible is awesome, fantastic from God, but it doesn't empower us. Jesus does that. In fact, here's an interesting passage about the power of the word of God. It's actually from the book of Hebrews chapter four. And I want you to pay close attention to it because I, I, I think many of us as Christians, we've heard this passage many, many times and we have a bias. And that's one of the things I'm trying to disrupt here a little bit is the fact that I think anybody in any Christian tradition is taught a lot of biases. Like whether we mean to or not, I'm not saying those are nefarious biases or anything like that. It's just they're taught biases. And so one of the biases comes out of chapter four of Hebrews, where it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you read that and, and, and what I've done for years, as I said, that's right, the Bible The word of God, it's living and active. That's why you want to study it. That's why you want to be in it. It's why you want to read it every day because this is the power source. This is the life source. And I've been reading Hebrews wrong the entire time because notice, right? So this goes back to your kind of freshman English class. The word of God is the subject of the topic here. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. It doesn't say the word of God is all of these things and no creature is hidden from its sight. See, the writer of Hebrews is telling you exactly what word of God he is referencing in this passage. He means Jesus. He doesn't mean the book. He doesn't mean the scriptures. He doesn't mean documents. He doesn't mean circulating letters. He doesn't mean historical manuscripts from Israel's history. He doesn't mean any of that. He means Jesus. Jesus is the living, active word of God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter one, he's already spelled this out. God had revelation through the prophets and all of that, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So the Son is the highest declaration of revelation. The Son is the highest declaration of the Word of God and its power. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to approach Jesus as the Word of God to open us up, work on us, and deploy us for his good pleasures, right? Like, that's the idea behind this. And so I think this is utterly important 
Because I, I, I think for far too long, far too many of us, myself included, has been looking at the book saying, come on, book, give me what I need. Come on, book, give me the power. Come on, book, give me the strength. Come on, book, give me the all the, the, the things that I need to be utterly different than the people around me. And, and then we're not utterly different. And the more we learn, the more we know. I mean, the American Evangelical Church has more working knowledge of the Bible than almost any other Christian tradition and sometimes looks the least empowered comparatively in a lot of ways. We look more enamored with the American dream and more enamored with our religious rights. And we want our church services and our music to swoon and swell up inside us so we can have an enriched spiritual life and we can feel good about things and good about ourselves and good about our families and making sure they have the right morals and everything else. But this idea of a countercultural kingdom embodied people... That's the thing that I, I, I keep going back to going, I want to be a part of that. I want to see that. I want that to be the radical community that the world can look at and say, wow, when we look at you guys, we see Jesus. Because I want to roll back to that again, right? I think I mentioned this earlier, that that when Paul says to a community like Corinth, for example, when he says, hey, everybody, if you watch my life, you're going to see Jesus. That's like a super bold statement. And I don't think he was making stuff up. I literally think that Paul was so empowered because he was so connected to the word of God, the person, that literally his life looked like Christ. He looked like the Sermon on the Mount. He looked like the Sermon on the Plain. He looked like the fruit of the Spirit. He looked like the definition of love. He wasn't blowing smoke and faking it. He actually looked those things. And he could look people in the eye and say, if you follow my life and example, you're going to look just like Jesus. See, here's why I love that and hate that. I love that because it lets me know it's possible. Why I hate that is that we actually love to say, hey, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Hey, don't look at me to judge Christ. Christ is good. I'm an, I'm just a sinful person. I make mistakes. Paul's like, you guys are knuckleheads. I was doing the opposite. I was telling people, man, diagnose my life. Look intently at me. Cut open what you see in me and look inside that and see if it's legit because this is the proof of the power of, of, of who Christ is. It's me living like Christ. It's Christ incarnated in my life. That's the proof of the power, right? So the book itself tells us it's possible and the book itself is saying, don't look at the book to be itself the power. That's amazing to me. Now let's go back to the life of Jesus for a minute because he made promises Like I said, the word of God is first, the person of Christ. Second, the word of God is the promises of God. And some of those promises are promises uttered in the person of Christ. So in John chapter 14 to John chapter 16, Jesus says all kinds of cool stuff. And amidst the cool stuff that Jesus says is he lets us know what the source of power is going to be once he leaves. And so he's telling them, listen, I know you guys don't want me to go, but I've got to go. It's going to be the cross. It's going to be misery. It's going to be terrible. But from that, you're going to have joy and you're going to have peace, which again, I look at those as promises. Here's promises the word of God makes of the empowering word of God that will give us joy and peace that is radical in comparison to the world. He goes, but it's going to take something. I need to leave something with you so that you have joy, so that you have power and so that you have peace. And what does he say from John chapter 14 to John chapter 16 that he will leave with us to teach us, to cognitively teach us how to be like him? Well, he didn't say, once I go away, I will leave the Bible. He doesn't say that. Not even remotely close. He says this, once I go away, I will leave with you a helper, the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, I want to read to you a smattering of passages. John 14, 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Then he drops into verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I've said to you. So here's promises that he's making. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that teaches us. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that brings brings things to remembrance. And we go into chapter 15, verse 26. When he, the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will testify about me. Chapter 16, verse seven, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then you see verse 13 to chapter 16. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, there's the truth. And we talk about what is the truth of God? The spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come, right? Even in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, uh, he says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. I want to take all of that and bundle it for a second. And I want to bring some clarity here because Jesus is making a promise that the way he will speak is through the spirit and the spirit will then speak into us. The spirit will guide us. The spirit will teach us. The spirit will empower us. And all of that is said without the Bible being in the framework. Now, before you misquote me, I am not, again, I'm a fan of the Bible. It is given to us as God's gift. It is a signpost to all of these things. So I'm not don't start prying it apart. No, Matt's not pro-Bible. Matt's very pro-Bible. Matt's trying to get you to the power source. Matt's trying to get you to realize that the power source isn't the book. The power source is the person. And the power source is the person of spirit and Christ working in tandem in your life to speak into your life, to teach your life, to recall things in your life, to guide your life, empower your life, strengthen your life, make your life fearless, make your life faithful, make your life oozing with love and the fruit of the spirit and and all the things that we love to discuss here, right? Like this is the source. Now, let me double down on this a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes about the Spirit. He says, only the Spirit can teach us the depths of God. Only the Spirit can show us the mind of God. Now, you might say, well, right, but because we read the Bible and that's the tool that he uses. Well, it's a tool he uses, but it's not the tool he uses. It's amidst many different tools that he uses. And here's one that might blow your mind for an incredibly long time. The Spirit and Jesus brought this empowerment and teaching to the church when it didn't have a Bible and certainly did not have a New Testament Bible. Like, think about it for a minute, right? From the resurrection of Jesus to the earliest document of the New Testament, it was probably 25, 30 years, right? I mean, imagine, I just think about that for a minute, right? That's a big span of time. I know sometimes in, when we talk about history, we, we kind of go, oh, 25, 30 years, whatever that is. <clears throat> but I'm like, 30 years ago, I was a snot-nosed, young, 20-something pastor that knew nothing. And in that 30 years, all kinds of things have happened, right? So the early Christians, the early church, a couple of fun facts. A, they had no written kind of documentation to guide them in what Jesus promised right? In John 14 through 16, John didn't even exist as a gospel yet, right? 
So they're just handing down, Jesus promised the Spirit's going to teach us. Jesus promised he's the Word of God and we need to lean into him. And then suddenly all of that became much more, again, kind of spiritual, mystical, if you will, right? Like there was a sense of they need to uh, rely on the risen Christ in their prayer lives and in their actions and in their obedience and their connectivity to Christ in a way that's divorced from any New Testament documentation because it just wasn't there yet. Like the earliest documents were like Galatians or First and Second Thessalonians or eventually Mark, right? Uh, but that didn't come for a long time. And yet the early church was radically powerful. Another fun fact is even when the documents started to float around, the mass majority of people were illiterate. They couldn't read those books. Matter of fact, for hundreds of years, most Christians would never have access to the Bible in their lives because A, it took so much work to just make one copy. It stayed at the church. And two, nobody had the ability to read it anyway. So the question becomes, how did Christianity thrive, grow, change an empire, alter complete regions of the world without a Bible? Well, because of these biblical promises, right? In other words, we can see where the Bible points in the direction of the power source. We have the blessing of reading the record much after the fact of what God was doing in the midst of the people, how he empowered them and how they were reliant on Jesus and spirit to be taught, to be guided, to be different. Because when I read the New Testament, these people were different. They were different, man. Like, honestly, like they laid themselves down with joy. They didn't fret and fear over the problems of life. They didn't get all wrapped up in uh, their their sense of well-being and, and, and what privileges they should be afforded. They didn't get all spun up about bad cell signals and a dish at the restaurant that you pay good money for and it didn't taste good. So you want to send it back and complain to the waitress or what? Like that just wasn't them, right? They were, they were so different. They, they convinced the world around them by their actions that Jesus was real because the people could look and say, you're so counter, uh, then your Christ must be legit. There's so much power in your life. That's undeniable. That power either causes people to want to destroy you or they want to join you. And over the course of time, it, 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 it went from destroy to join more and more. Because even when it wanted to destroy them, instead of them cowering in fear and demanding that they be respected, uh, or even like we've seen in our culture, like then we're going to sue for our rights and we're going to demand that you let us do what we want. Like the early church didn't do any of that stuff. The early church is like, go ahead and you bring your persecution to us and we're going to take it with joy. We're going to take all of our lumps with joy. And you're going to see that. That that was the thing for me. Again, even like in 2020, 2021, I'm looking at all these religious leaders that are blowing out for sexual immorality. They're freaking out over cultural conditions. They're protesting everything that's going on. I'm like, there is no Christ-like power to be seen there at all, right? None. It's so utterly human in the name of Jesus. But when I look at the early Christians, when I look at the Christians for the first few hundred years, again, no Bible, reliant on spirit, seeking Jesus. They changed the world. So what's my point? Oh, by now, I think you know my point, right? I love the Bible. The Bible isn't Jesus. I love the Bible, but the Bible isn't power. The Bible points us to Jesus and a spirit who give us the power. And as I read the different personalities in the Bible, I'm watching Paul, I'm watching John, I'm watching James, I'm watching Jude, I'm watching Peter, I'm watching, you know, just all the different characters. 
in the scriptures. I'm watching Mary and I'm watching Martha. And they, I, I see they all have this, just again, this this desperation to be dependent on Christ, to be filled with the Spirit. And and and, and they, they wrestle with their problems and complications and their own human fears, but then they submit that to Christ as quickly as they can because they don't want to be away from the power source. Like I watch all of that. I read all of that. And it motivates me not to bury myself more in the book, but to bury myself in the Christ to whom the book points. So I hope you understand my heart, my, 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 I want to say fear. It's not fear. I, my concern is that there'll be this reactiveness in some people like, no, 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 no. He's attacking the Bible. No, he's not. He's putting the Bible in its proper position. It's proper position. And, and, and I think the facts spell themselves out more and more when I, again, I look around and I see the premier Bible teachers that don't look a lot like Christ. And then I see the ones that seem to look a lot like Christ. Again, it's hard because again, you can have a premier Bible teacher that's very moral and honorable and a good person, but they just don't, they don't have that Jesus disposition. But I look at these others and I go, I see this Jesus disposition and I see this, this reckless abandon to their faith. And I go, that's where I see something real. I want to imitate them because they're imitating Christ. Where before I think I was looking, I want to teach like them as they teach about Christ. I want to be as confident about their understanding of Christ as opposed to I want to be confident in the energizing life of an incarnated Christ in me. Like, like that is the difference. And it's hard because suddenly the homework assignment is totally different. Like before, the homework assignment is really easy when you're like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and get three commentaries, a theology book in my Bible, and I'm going to I'm gonna study the history and the culture and the language and all the details, and I'm going to nail down exactly what this text was saying 2,000 years ago to this group and this city at this time. But that homework assignment is pretty easy at the end of the day because it's finite and it feels concrete, and we like to take assurances in our concrete certainties. But what Jesus is offering up in John is a journey, is a life, is a, is a dynamic, is a dance. It's a relationship. See, there's a difference between approaching the Bible as an academic and approaching Jesus as a desperate human being. And that's where he wants us. And in approaching him, we're approaching him to saying, I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to really be like you. Because again, that's where all of the rubber meets the road, right? It's, it's that we want to be able to say to the world around us, if you analyze my life, you're going to see Jesus and you're going to see him pretty clearly. I know that probably kind of makes you a little nervous because you're like, no, I don't want the world looking at me and me saying, if you see me, you're seeing Jesus. But guess what? That's exactly what he expects us to do. And he knows we can't do it in our, in our of ourselves. So he wants us to rely on him. He wants us to rely on spirit. He wants us to learn from spirit, be taught by the spirit, be taught by the risen incarnate speaking Christ, the living word who cuts into our very soul, right? Like we saw in Hebrews 4. Like that's where he wants us to be. And then rooted in the word of God, which is God's promises. But then learning from the scriptures, the law, and the prophets. It's just putting everything in the proper box, right? Which sounds terrible. Like, I'm like, yeah, out of the box. No, I'm like, well, put them in the proper box, right? Big W, Word of God. Jesus is one box. Promises of God, another Word of God box. 
the third word of God box, the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament, that kind of thing, right? And then remembering where the power lies. The power is not in box three. The power is looking at box three to point us toward dependence on box two and box one, right? And ultimately, it's that life in the spirit every day, being filled with the spirit, as Paul says, seeking the mind of the spirit, right? Where there is life and peace. The homework assignment now is suddenly kind of exotic. And the homework assignment is suddenly um, intangible. And it's not a bunch of check boxes, but it's reliance and desperation, hungering and thirsting and wanting and needing and, and, and praying a lot and praying in all the real ways and submitting our frustration, submitting our fears, being reminded of, man, I'm very tempted to want to go my own way, do my own thing, make my own demands, expect my own rights. And that's nothing like you, Jesus. If the world is looking at me as I'm standing up for what uh, my rights are, it's not going to see you, Jesus. It's going to see me making a stand for me. It's not going to see you showing love to others, showing this idea of servanthood and sacrifice to others. Everything is a billboard for Jesus for good or bad. And when we're unempowered, but we're Bible researchers and Bible upholders and Bible defenders, but we're not truly empowered by Jesus, that can be more of a dangerous thing than a good thing. If there's anything the history of humanity has taught us when it comes to the Bible is the Bible can be a source of guidepost to beautiful empowerment and grace, or it can be a weapon of destruction that ruins people's lives. So this is why we want the Bible in its proper place, in its proper orientation to our walk with Christ and ultimately to our dependence, longing for Christ so that Christ lives in us, his power indwells us, and we move away from the stuff of our old lives, which is hating and being hated, driven by passions and pleasures, and instead we're driven by his message, his grace, his lowly and kind disposition and demeanor that says others are more important than me. The kingdom and its ways and means of getting accomplished are more important than my fortitude and strength and demands and expectations and wants in this life. Because that's what we decided to embrace when we follow Christ. We said, all right, Jesus, we're setting ourselves to being like you, to loving like you, living like you. And if there's anything you see in Jesus, it's look at all the things he did for you when you didn't deserve them, I didn't deserve them. So all the more weird to do those things to others who may not deserve them, who may not even want them. But that's what it means to live like Jesus. And I believe when we live like Jesus and we're empowered by Jesus and we're taught by the Spirit and we're guided by the Spirit, we let the Bible be the signpost, but we let Spirit and Jesus be the empowerment. I think from that, we will be pretty impressive, compassionate, and helpful everyday missionaries.